Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm really good. Happy to see and hear from you this morning. I can't see, but I can hear you. <laughs> Happy to be here. I am charting a new course and new ground with this fabulous uh, app recording, this audio recording app. So thank oh, you yeah. for helping me become a little bit more current. This is, I actually really love it. It makes life easy and I like easy. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So I wanted to connect with you because I've been talking about Black family and I just wanted to get your perspective on it. Um, Before I start though, I wanted to like give you an opportunity to say, hey, what's up? Like, I know you as my cousin, Essie, but you are more than just my cousin. Uh, Do you mind telling us, like, everything that you are? Well, um, I always like to start off by saying I am the express manifestation of the love of God realized in all that he has gifted me uh, to be and do realized in the call on my life. So I, I always situate everything there because all that matters in my uh, humble opinion is that uh, what I do, what I say, um, how I um, uh, live this life, what matters for me is that I'm living in uh, the purpose and the plan that he has for me. So we'll start there. <laughs> I think that's a good start. Um, yes, yes. Uh, but then thereafter, I am um, professionally an educational psychologist. Uh, I am a professional counselor. I am uh, a um, educator. I am, uh, you know, um, a community leader um, and in some respects, activist. I am a seminarian. I am currently uh, finishing my Master uh, of Divinity um, at McCormick Theological Seminary. I'll shout them out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am the youngest baby girl of four children, uh, a proud auntie to many, um, um, and a proud and loving cousin to as many as I can, uh, recall and remember, including you, the <laughs> uh, most importantly, I am a child of, of the most high God. And I'll just stop there and, and, and just park. <laughs> I absolutely like your introduction. I think a lot of times we don't give ourselves credit for everything that we are. And I just always wanted to say that I knew that you were always more. I just didn't know how many things that you were. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Um, Yes. So I really appreciate you taking the time out. So I wanted to start off by just asking you about like your experience with family um, 
specifically like your experience with family and community um, because I know in my conversation like the thing that I keep on talking to people about is this idea of what the black family is and then the idea of what the black family was because I feel like you know my mom was born in 1956 my dad was born in 1960 I feel like there was a very different type of family relationship that people had in like the 60s the 70s and going into the 80s and this is a family relationship that I personally never got to experience um it, it felt like people were way closer. You know, on my mom's side of the family, everyone used to have Sunday dinner at their grandmother's house every Sunday. Um, you know, there's just so many things, so many stories that I heard, but like actually never experienced because by the time I was born, things such as Sunday dinner just didn't happen anymore. And I wanted to hear like, what what is your experience in family and community? Sure, sure, sure. Yes. So um, for the most part, uh, Shatana, uh, it was uh, very similar to what you describe of your parents' uh, upbringing. Uh, so I am a child of the 70s, so I'm smack dab in the middle of that uh, span of time that you sort of framed there. And um, I come from a big family on my mother's side. Uh, my mother was the oldest of 10 children. And um, everyone was, you know, both sides of my family, as you know, uh, are Southerners. Um, so we're connected on your father's side. Um, so my mom and dad's side are from the South, Mississippi, Alabama. And yeah, the traditions that those Southern traditions um, were yet practiced as I was growing up. Um, family gatherings were always very important. I don't know that we got together every Sunday as a family collective, um, but we did get together quite often. As a matter of fact, um, especially, you know, certainly uh, holidays that went without saying. Um, my mother was always hosting Christmas. I think that was her favorite holiday to mm -hmm. host, but we didn't miss our gatherings as a family. So we would gather for the holidays and in general also we would gather at church. Uh, Sunday, it may, it may not have necessarily been Sunday dinner, but we would have had fellowship with many of our family members, my grandmother, my mother, um, a couple of my aunts. We would meet at the church as well um, from time to time. My grandmother and mother were very, very active in my home church where I grew up. And so the, all of these posed as opportunities um, to connect with the family. One other thing that was very unique for me um, and I think was a bedrock for our family was uh, our family reunion. And our family reunion was a big, big deal on my mother's side. 
Um, my uh, mother's side of the family was split. They were uh, born in, you know, they were from Mississippi, but of course, um, all of them migrated either to Chicago or to Los Angeles. And so those of us who were in Chicago, um, we formed a side of the Chicago chapter, if you will, that would be planning for that big, great family reunion. And those who were in Los Angeles, they were the LA chapter. And so growing up, our family reunions would commence generally every other year. And boy, was it a big affair. Typically, we would go back south, back home to what they would call the home house. We would always meet. Uh, the home house where my mom grew up is still a part of the family and the land that they own. And then those family reunions would take us all over the country. I can't tell you how many states we visited as a family um, in the name of our family reunion. So those were the experiences I remember on my mom's side. On, on my dad's side, the side that we share, um, the, the family gathering for me because I was born and raised, I don't know that I mentioned that I live in Chicago. Um, and so the way that we gathered was my father would traditionally go back home uh, when I was much younger, it would either be uh, around Thanksgiving um, or Christmas, depending upon how that fell when I was much younger. And then as I grew older, we would go back maybe for summer visits or whatever. Um, as I grew older, it was exciting for me to be able to drive my parents back home uh, to stay for a bit, maybe a week or whatever. Uh, to share and visit with family. And once again, when we would visit, the tradition was on. Uh, our grandmother, uh, your great-grandmother, um, whom I'm named after, by the way, uh, her, her nickname was Manager, though. Um, <laughs> she would cook, 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 cook. And, uh, you know, our aunt, um, you know, my father's sisters, everybody would be in town, generally speaking. Um, he had a sister in Atlanta. She would drive up. And so, yes, uh, family uh, gatherings were very important, very special, and typically centered around food as well as we would celebrate and spend time with each other and gather at the table. Wow, there's so many things that I didn't know I kind of knew some aspects but I didn't know first of all I didn't know that you were named after my great-grandmother uh that's really cool and I didn't know that your mom's side of the family was from Mississippi uh it just it feels like I don't know for me because my my mom's side of the family never actually left the south you know, there's this story in history. It's a history story. It's a great migration where like a lot of people migrated like to Los Angeles or Chicago or New York. But in all reality for, you know, my side of the family, we kind of stayed in the South. Like they, my mom's side of the family left Louisiana, but they just went to Texas and, um, you know, Texas does, as a state, have more money. Like, Texas is a richer state. 
-hmm. I remember looking at like the GDP, but I feel culturally Texas is not that different from Louisiana in terms of like, I don't know, just like Southern, Southern racism. Um, So, you know, there's, there's that, that dichotomy of like going North and then coming back South that like personally, I hadn't heard anyone have that, that story, but like in your story, I hear it, you know, you're like, we went from Chicago to Mississippi or from Chicago or Los Angeles to Alabama. Um, and I, I really appreciate like just hearing that. Um, yes, yes, yes. Yes. We, we are the, um, the, um, dis- I don't want to say, well, yes, we are the descendants, the children's children. That great migration was real and present um, and was very impactful uh, in many respects for both my mom and my dad, all of my mom's family, all of her siblings, and uh, eventually uh, her mother. We called uh, my mother's mother, we, her nickname was Madea. So we had a real Madea before Tyler Perry uh, became very famous for coining the term. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, everyone migrated uh, from Mississippi on my uh, mother's side. And on my father's side, um, everyone did not necessarily uh, migrate. My father was one. Uh, his brother, his oldest brother, uh uh, John migrated, uh, ended up in Colorado. And I think that was more situated around his career in the military as well. And so for various reasons, uh, you know, our families and our family members shifted. But I will say for a very deliberate reason of upward mobility, uh, opportunity, I will say that on my mom's side, everybody left Mississippi to uh, to realize a better life for themselves. Uh, I love it. Okay, so I feel like we have a good basis. We know what the Black family historically has done and has come from. And so I want to kind of bring it into today. What is the Black family today? And to kind of ground, I've spoken to friends who live in New Orleans and, um, you know, from my conversations with them, they feel like family today isn't really about that tradition or even about that history so much. It's more so about finding your community through shared values because we have less connection, I think. Um, You know, another thing that they said is a lot of times you're not going to find positive people. Um, You know, you might find a lot of brown people, but they won't especially positively impact your life just because of various reasons. I think a lot of people have like, you know, people of all races have unhealthy habits or they just don't see the same thing that you see. They don't see eye to eye. So they emphasize that it's really important to not consider, you know, skin tone as the end all be all, but more so consider your values 
as the way by which you should build your community. And I wanted to know if that linked up with like your understanding of family today. Okay. Um, so there are a couple great nuggets that you shouted out uh, there um, that I kind of want to just briefly touch on. So you're, uh, you are absolutely right in how you framed uh, this um, sort of notion of the Black family today. They, they, essentially, there has been a shift a huge, huge shift. Um, In order for me to talk about the shift though, uh, let me just uh, do a little more grounding to in terms of what once was. And so, yes, uh, you know, I've talked a bit about what my family experience was growing up, but the black family, when we think about it collectively in general, was in my opinion and from what I have you know, observed, uh, was traditionally uh, uh, shaped and steeped in a collective uh, value system. Uh, And and I mean, everything was about we. Uh, And when I say back then, I am framing things even I can even take your frame. You started 60s, 70s, and 80s, but I would take it, uh, you know, back further and certainly talk about, you know, everything from the 60s on back. Uh, family values were steeped, in my opinion, in a collective nature. It was about the we of the families. Anything that was done, if you were found uh, you know, being a bit mischievous, uh, it was a shame uh, placed upon the family as well, your actions. And so the family was uh, uh, a central core uh, in um, Black life. And um, I think it is very uh, important to also mention that During this time, our families were, particularly when they were in the South, our families typically were much bigger. Uh, Children were essential for survival, right, to uh, assist and aid in terms of farming, to assist and aid in terms of, uh, you know, if folks were, uh, you know, still post you know, in, in a sharecropping situation or, or if folks were raising and picking cotton, you know, you need children, uh, to help, you know, the more hands that you have, uh, the more that you can produce in a given day. That being said, uh, I would like to say that families, uh, were, uh, more accountable. And then also you had these groups of families situated, which uh, combined made up community. Uh, community uh, was one in which if you lived in these rural uh, areas, you know, it would be miles to go to walk or even to drive, but typically to walk would be the stories I would hear before you could get to the local whatever, whether it was the local store, whether it was the local 
you know, even the local school. Um, so whatever was done in the community was done in a particular region and area. And you had uh, different groups that were a part of that region or area. So therefore, if I was found playing or whatever down the block, down the street, down the road, uh, and there was Miss Pruitt, uh, and if I was found doing something I had no business, Miss Pruitt, uh, because our families were in community, was just as able to chastise or correct me as a child as my mother, father, whatever. Um, and not only as the old adage or story would go, would Miss Pruitt uh, chastise you, correct you, um, but you know it would be something to pay that Miss Pruitt would have an opportunity to get you, and then turn around by the time you get home because she is going to let your parents know your mother or father would follow up and you would be. Uh, corrected, chastised again. Okay. And so now that was in part a very real uh, piece of our culture in terms of family, Black families. And the last piece that is inherent and important to realize is that we also were very connected in our faith and in, in, in our church relation. And so church was also within that community, uh, meaning that the closest church may be down the road or whatever, whatever, however mile or however long or short it would be, typically that church was situated within community. And so our families, uh, what I'm trying to suggest here and uh, 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 sort of wrap our head around in this conversation is faith was also a central core value within the family, which is why, uh, you know, your faith values uh, were the ones that were to drive and to regulate your behavior. And that is why if your behavior got off course, it would be a part of the faith family value to correct you accordingly within the community as well, because we all things were as one in community. So I just wanted to start there uh, to situate uh, the black family, because when you talk about the shift in the black family, uh, you're talking about uh, something bigger than just uh, a shift in migration. Yes, there was a great shift in migration for many black families in this country uh, in America, uh, but uh, there's something greater that has shifted as well. And so as we migrated away from our rural communities, we also migrated from the demands of the rural environment, right? And so as we move up north or we move up, up and out to other opportunities, as the industrialized age came about, um, you know, you found that, um, you know, families weren't necessarily um, uh, uh, working together in a workspace or an environment as they used to. And so this is one 
uh, way in which um, you find a disruption in the values that you um, that you had uh, in the South. The other thing is uh, the busyness of city lives. Um, not only the busyness, the um, how how do you put it? The uh, the inviting uh, diversity, maybe I should say, of different things that you could do, get involved in, engage in in city life also is very different than, than rural life. You had access uh, <laughs> to the store, little, you know, uh, you know, across the street or up the block. You had access to, uh, you know, the uh, entertainment, for example, uh, in ways in which you didn't have in, in the South. And so I, I think that is a game changer as well in terms of, a shift in in value as as well, and 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 uh, the last piece that I want to mention is that um, you know there was also a shift in our faith values in our um, uh, uh, church uh, behavior and going ultimately, and I and and I say ultimately because it wasn't like an immediate shift. I, I maintain that Blacks that moved up from uh, the North or migrated still found a way to congregate in their churches, still found a way to keep God uh, central in, their, uh, in governing uh, how the family operates. Um, but as time has moved on, as you pointed out, the 70s, the 80s, I would, I would dare say you don't see that great of a shift in the 70s and 80s. I would say you see uh, the greater shift toward uh, the end of the 20th century into the here and the now. So by the time we get to uh, the late 90s, 2000, and to where we are today, <clears throat> you find that people... Uh, are not as tied. And when I say people, now we're talking about a couple generations out from the great mi migration. So we're, we're talking about the great grandchildren or the great, great grandchildren, or, you know, of those who have migrated north. Um, they're not as tied to uh, church and their faith and all of that. The other thing is we're also not as tied in community. So people don't know their neighbors like they used to, uh, you know, 50, 60 years ago. You know, people aren't as tied because my neighbor could, you know, just as well be one person today. And, you know, I can move out of this neighborhood and be somewhere else tomorrow. And we have shifted from a collective mentality to a very westernized individual uh, listic kind of mentality. I got mine, you get yours. It's all about me, myself, and I. I think in our culture, and I think this mentality has seeped in and permeated it, itself in our family. I know I've talked a lot, but the last thing I want to say is I also find that there's been <clears throat> a great shift in the disruption of our families. Uh, directly disruption, the direct disruption of our families 
has also increased and enhanced itself. And let me frame that by saying, ever since, uh, uh, you know, the transatlantic, you know, uh, our families have been disrupted uh, from 16, 19 and beyond in some form of fashion. I'm not going to go way back to the, the, those uh, beginnings, um, but the Black family didn't begin and end in 1619. But in terms of the disrupted experience here in America, we can tra- trace that back for many, many years, over 400 years. And it is yet pervasive today. Our families were disrupted in the, in the South, you know. We are uh, the, the descendants of strange fruit, those who had to endure being lynched, maimed, burned, killed, you know. We are the descendants of those who were, who were and yet are oppressed. And so uh, that disruption uh, really was one in the South 50, 60 years ago, uh, really galvanized us even closer together out of a sense of survival. But here we are some 50 or 60 years later and that same disruption has manifested itself in so many different ways. It's still there, but it has manifested itself in mass incarceration. It has manifested itself in you know, uh, gun violence and, and specifically what's highlighted today in terms of police violence. Um, it has manifested itself in uh, the laws that we have, the mandatory minimums and, um, and how once you are deemed uh, a federal offender, once you have this record, how your life, how you are allowed to be discriminated against for life, uh, you know, according to the law. As Michelle Alexander has coined it in her text, the new, the new Jim Crow. And so, Uh, I think all of these factors play into what you are pressing me to talk about in terms of uh, values for building community. I see a scattered set of values today. I see a very skewed uh, adoption of values that I don't know that we, uh, you know, I don't know how to capture it all, but I do see that we are uh, you know, adopting more to uh, the culture and the uh, lay of the land where money is the new God of in many black families. You know, I'm not, please don't misinterpret me. I'm not laying claim that this is for all, but money is a God in this country, in this culture. And it is for many a measure of success uh, it is a measure of, of, of comfortability. And when you're dealing with a group of people that have been marginalized, that have been laid at the fringes of society, that have been oppressed, that have been oppressed in education, uh, they come from the, uh, the, the group called the have-nots, well, then it makes sense that it's important for you to make money, make money, uh, no matter how legitimate that money is made or not. And so this, to me, has been a uh, digression of, of 
core family values that were centered in faith, centered in God, um, to centered in a God of capitalism, uh, centered in a God of individualism. Uh, you don't see community today where people are uh, necessarily concerned about the other person's well-being. Uh, people can see people getting uh, injured, beat up, uh, even uh, shot today and stand up and look. It takes a collective sense of um, I've had enough to get to the point where uh, we as a people galvanize our forces today. So when you see a Michael Brown, when you see a Ahmaud Arbery, when you see a George Floyd and a Breonna Taylor, after having incident, an incident of a Sandra Bland, incident, incident of a Philando Castile, uh, after having multiple incidents of this sort of uh, violence that has gone unchecked, then finally one straw breaks a camel's back and then you'll see a galvanizing of uh, the black family, the black voice, uh, the, even the black faith toward uh, the cause of liberation. So I'll stop there. I know I've talked a moment, but yes, it's it, it, our values are, um, you know, are steeped in a lot of things. I'm not saying the faith is thrown out the window, but it has been uh, uh, infused with some uh, values of the of this nation, of this culture, I think that has also sort of tainted the pot, if you will. I really like what you have brought up. I think as you were talking, there are a few things that really I want to kind of explore with you. Um, so you, you kind of talked about how basically white supremacy transforms. You know, like you mentioned Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, where she really goes into how white supremacy has become a system as opposed to something that's um, way more apparent. So like, like you said, we are the descendants of people who have been lynched or who have experienced white supremacist violence in, in a very direct sense. And over time, um, like Michelle Alexander explains, this kind of violence became a system so that the, 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 the violence isn't so apparent, but so much it's kind of designed so that it can make criminals of Black people. And I want to kind of throw out a theory that I have and this theory is supported by a couple of current events. Um, so Black Family, I know, is very steeped in faith. And the stories that you told me about, like, having to walk a mile or two to get to anything um, are, are, are very much so stories that I, I remember hearing, but also reading in, like, Zora Neale Hurston's books or Toni Morrison's books. Like these are stories of like what it meant to be a black person in this like historical remembering. And so, um, you know, what you said really just bought it more, more current, more real. 
because you know Zora Neale Hurston and Toni Morrison wrote fiction now it was fiction based off of their real life lived experiences but it was fiction so you know grounding it in a more real sense um and and you know the characters in those books always had like a faith and 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 their faith was very ground in like their their family what they understood about life and this faith was something that they practiced in every aspect of their lives and so the current event that I wanted to bring up was Stacey Abrams in Georgia and the work that she did to help, you know, get Black people activated politically, which is very difficult to do. And some of the things that she would say is that her father uh, was a preacher. And what she decided to do was to approach political work like you would approach building a church. And so all the things that it takes to build a church are the same things that it means to build a community. And so basically he took something that was her faith and turned it into a system that allowed people who were black and brown, who had a very specific lived experience, it allowed them to, to organize politically and this kind of pairs with something that I understand about black blackness, which is as long as black people have existed in this country, white supremacy has existed in this country because white supremacy created blackness. Um, you know, white supremacy is the thing that said, go steal people from their homes in, in Africa and bring them here to be slaves. So like there's this just kind of knowing that I have that as white supremacy has become more complex, so has black faith become more complex. Um, and it's out of necessity. And so there's that one idea that like our, our community in the historical past has had always had a faith practice that, that has built our community and has built it based on values. And I don't wanna say that we have lost that faith, but I do wanna say that that faith has become more complex in the same way that white supremacy has become more complex. Um, the second thing is wealth, because it is true I've lived in the South my whole life and my family has lived in the South our whole lives. We actually never had a chance to experience the great migration and all the different economic benefits that come with it. You know, you, you describe like how black people went from like having a very rural lifestyle to going into a city and all of a sudden having like access and, um, and that access bought with it like economic opportunity. And in, in where I'm from, I mean, quite frankly, my mother is the first generation to have actually had opportunity to work herself into, into a wealthier life. And, and when I say wealthier, I don't mean like we're wealthy. I just mean that we're okay. Um, because before that, it was always a story of not being okay. Um, it was always a story of, you know, my great grandmother was a maid 
And then even my grandmother had to work as a caregiver and for very low wages, you know, and, and I, I find so many positive things out of that experience, but I also know that, that it has been traumatic for those people in my family who had to actually live through it. Um, and so wealth is a driving factor because at the end of the day, you need money in this country. As long as you're in this country, you need money. Like you can't do anything without it. And I've heard some people who are my age say that like, you know, even still in the South, families do act as a collective um, just for money. And, it, and it's not specifically that they act as a collective like you're remembering, because, you know, in, in the collective that you've described, there was not only, you know, the collective economic activity, but there was a collective faith activity, but also there was a lot of care and love um, and, and, and there was stability that was bought through that collective. But uh, when I spoke to my friends who are my age, they described people staying in a collective unit as a family, as a biological family, not because they especially like each other, not because they especially share, share the same values. It's just that like economically, they cannot afford to do anything else. And that causes a lot of tension, like so much tension. Um, because, because within that, like within that understanding that you have no money and you have to work as a collective with your family, I think there's still this, um, you described like children and, and how they were raised in, in historical remembering, like, you know, Miss Pruitt down the road would chastise you if you didn't do as you were told or expected. Um, but today, like they still have that experience, like people my age and younger who are in a collective with their family, not because anything other than economics, they still get this chastising. Um, and this chastising is for anything and everything. It's, you know, chastising for wanting to do art or chastising for wanting to cut off all your hair and grow an Afro or um, chastising for any number of things. And um, this is something that has caused a lot of younger people to just really dislike their family and to really confuse like this chastising with like the idea that their family doesn't like them or that, that, that their family won't support them for just who they are. Um, because I know in the South, they call it respectability politics, but respectability politics is also really tied to like an idea of assimilation. And so the, this idea of assimilation is like, you never challenge anything. You just do what you're told, especially as a person who's telling you to do it if they're older than you. And you don't question, you know, their motivations. Um, if you have something like dreadlocks or an Afro, it's definitely, you're pushing the boundaries here because your politics 
seem to be going in the wrong direction. Um, you know, if you do anything other than find work, and I'm talking about like just the most menial jobs sometimes, if you do anything like try to follow your dreams, you're seen as someone who isn't really doing a positive thing. You're doing something negative. And, and that is something that's a really hard pill to swallow for a lot of young people. And they end up alienating themselves from their family as a result of it. And, um, and I just wanted to, I wanted to bring that up because I, I can see how, like, when, when I'm listening to you, that there was a point in our, in our family lives where, like, there was this cohesive unit and all these aspects um, work together in a better way. But whereas today, like, it's like these holdovers aren't especially working in the way that they were intended. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and, you said, uh-huh, um, go on. Uh, and I just wanted to end there and just like hear, hear what you were saying. No, no, no. I, I, you've said a lot is what I was going to say. <laughs> um, and I, um, I will try to do my very best uh, to address some of some of what uh, you have raised and lifted up as very important and significant to consider. I think I'll start backwards uh, to go back here because uh, I think the last thing you were mentioning is this whole sense of uh, where we are today and how um, many of these uh, families, and actually, I don't know that your point is, you know, uh, aligned only to, you know, living in the South today or whatever. I think uh, you could find uh, a ring of truth to this just about wherever. I feel as though you're speaking more about uh, the changing of uh, the guard in terms of the times and an era. And you spoke about being chastised for individuality as opposed to, you know, and that assimilation is uh, sort of uh, uh, lifted as uh, the identity of, of choice or the identity that will be approved uh, upon in your, you know, family uh, group or setting. Um, And when you try to uh, self-actualize in your own way, self-identify, whether that is with your hair or with your choice of of, uh, pursuit in your career, um, or even if it's while you're in your holding pattern trying to figure out what you want to do, how you want to uh, act in in this world um it may be met with a boat of a boatload of criticism um and subsequent chastising um i think that is normal uh across the generations i will say this i i don't dismiss what you're saying at all i i absolutely lift it up i just see it from both perspectives i think it's important when we're able to 
stand in the other party's shoes at all times. I laugh at myself today because, uh, you know, I am telling my sisters on the phone, I said, oh my goodness, I sound like mommy now. I sound like our mother, you know, as I'm listening and, and connecting with their children, you know. So here we are in the midst of a pandemic and I have some nieces and nephews there. You know, this pandemic has not slowed them down. You know what I mean? They've been doing their thing. They've been traveling in and out the country. And, and, and I have just, I've been over here shaking my head. What is wrong with you all? <laughs> Don't you understand? The pandemic is real. <laughs> and I had to have a flashback. Uh, because my mother was doing the same thing to me uh, some 20 years ago, uh, right around uh, 9-11. What happened was uh, not long after 9-11 happened, I had already paid for, purchased, and was anticipating going on a cruise that December. 9-11 happened in September. So now we had to make a a good gospel decision. We, as my friends and I, was three of us young, young ladies, you know, and my mother, oh, she just got on me. You have no business (laughs) getting on a plane right now, don't you know? (laughs) And I was just like my nieces and nephews. Oh, my, blah, blah, blah didn't pay me any, you know, I didn't pay her any attention. I went on the cruise, had a good time, came back home. I was just fine. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's when I realized, oh my goodness, this is not only a generational thing, but I recognize it as the others, the older parties concern for your safety, a protective factor, right? Uh, It was a protective factor for my mother. She was concerned. She didn't want to see me harmed in 9-11. I'm willing to, and it was a, it's a protective factor today for my, my own, uh, you know, uh, sharing and, and, and sort of admonishing of my nieces and nephews. Right. And Mm -hmm. so when you mentioned this piece of being chastised for not being an individual, my my uh my experience teaches me to not take it so personal uh because in my mind i'm willing to bet i don't know everyone's situation but i'm willing to bet that uh some of what is being said is being said out of someone else's experience and as we've already shared if you have lived at any time in this country called the United States. I I call it the yet to be United States, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You would have had some varied experiences. And so my experience of uh, when you continue to talk about white supremacy, my experience of racism, my experience of oppression informs what I'm talking about, it informs how I respond and behave. It informs everything. I am speaking and living 
in part from that lens. I'm not saying that I am crippled by the lens, but I have to cope and, and live life through my experience. And so I just got to a place where I realized that oftentimes when I hear this sort of, of I may call it banter, uh, it's out of response and regard of their shared experience and also their shared concern for my well-being in general. Uh, everyone has to uh, speak to their own uh, experience. But when I think about, you know, my change of hair, you know, I don't, I don't wear dreadlocks, but, you know, natural hair is a big deal nowadays. Uh, and I've been wearing my hair, twisting it up and wearing it kind of long, strong, wild and proud, uh, you know, since the early nineties. Uh, and, you know, I even remember my own grandmother, like, I sure wish you would comb your hair, <laughs> you know? So it, that, that is, that is, you know, a part of change. That is a part also of growth and development and in part, I had to be okay. I knew I was going to get those comments. You know, it got to a point I did not internalize it anymore and began to say, okay, I'm choosing. This is my life. And I also had to appreciate and understand uh, their perspective because there was a reason why, uh, you know, they would encourage me not to, not to respond in, in kind. I'll never forget, I'll say this and I'll leave that subject alone. My great aunt, near and dear to my heart, my grandmother's sister, uh, I'll never forget, I got so upset one day with uh, uh, something that was going on in my community. I really don't remember what happened, but I called my aunt up and I said, I called and protested this and I am writing a letter and I've sent I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm, I, I was asserting my activism and what, how I was going to respond to a most recent experience of discrimination. And uh, her response to me is, you better leave those white folks alone. Leave those white folks alone. And I took what she said. I didn't, I wasn't offended or insulted by it. I still did what I had to do for me. But I recognized in that moment that she was born at the turn of the 20th century. Do you understand? She was born in 1919. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so her shared and lived experience is very different from what mine is uh, and the liberties that I share and I, uh, you know, live in and walk through and operate under were not hers, you know, in, 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 you know, in her era. And so I understand, even though she is living in a day that was a new era where things are a bit different, it's hard to get out of that mindset of what you were raised under. And so I get that. Um, and, and it's okay. And I appreciate uh, her wisdom and her insight. And I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I know that there's also some wisdom to what she's saying too, 
in the sense of thinking about, you call it white supremacy in general, I'm thinking about the empire collective. I recognize that, you know, these systems and structures are designed to remain in place for the benefit of white men in particular. So I'm, I'm, I'm very clear about that. Um, and to, a, to a, a great degree, what she says is still very true. Now, I want to take that and uh, use that to uh, sort of dovetail and pivot into this piece that you mentioned in terms of, you know, moving from the South to the rural community and how, you know, uh, the picture that I painted earlier was one of moving uh, almost like the Jeffersons, moving on up um, to the East side, right? Well, moving on up northward to opportunity and and the big pie in the sky. Let me uh, uh, qualify that and offer some disclaimer here. So that does not mean that uh, struggle, this was absent of racism, absent of, you know, discrimination, absent of oppression, absent of, uh, you know, um, absent of uh, being uh, uh, subjugated uh, to um, a second class uh, sort of um, uh, benefit, you know, a second class benefit. So I could work the same work, do the same job, but uh, I would not reap the same reward. Um, that remained true. Uh, so just moving up north didn't mean that the south was the only place that was wrought with uh, oppression and racism. No, that, that is so far from the truth. And when I'm thinking about that great aunt, I'm thinking about countless stories that she would tell uh, when she migrated here to Chicago to the community in which her home is still today uh, has evolved and transformed with gentrification to a uh, very sought after prime property kind of community, right? Whereas when she migrated here, she would often tell the stories of how uh, black folks were living on top of each other ghettos, slums kind of situation. The home that is in her family's name today that she purchased, she and her husband own, right? Her family owns today. I want you to know it's a gray stone, which means it has two levels, huge building, several rooms in that building. And when they moved here, she had she they were paying to live in one room in the home so i just want to paint a, a a clear picture here that moving up north did not mean uh you were moving away you know uh from the you know the likes of of the kkk you know what i'm saying and and that brings me to the next point of uh when you talked about uh, you know, in terms of Michelle Alexander's book and uh, white supremacy created this system uh, 
you know, of racism or making black people criminalizing the criminalization of blacks. But I, I, I press you on that. I want to submit to you today that the system has always existed. It's a caste system. It has always existed, right? As long as you had white folks trying to lay claim to American shores, uh, it has been about control and domination. It has never shifted. It has always existed. Um, and, 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 I, and, and I just want to offer a sidebar there because, you know, black, black presence here in America did not start with 16, the transatlantic slave trade did not start there. You know, uh, there were black folks here, you know, on this land, on these shores, well before a white person set foot here, you know, we have native uh, Americans who were here, the native indigenous people, people of color, people who are black. And by the way, I have, you know, just for your own personal interest, uh, that we, uh, as a family on, uh, uh, our father's side, uh, that your, uh, well, what would be my great grandmother would, would be your great, great uh, great, I think. No, your great great grandmother uh, was a Black Creek Indian, right? So was a native of this land. So this land is our land on so many different fronts. <laughs> you know, so I, I I press the issue of this system hasn't been created. This system just has been reimagined over and over again, covertly. Uh, reimagined, but now it is overt again. You know, it 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 was always been in place, but initially started off overtly, then kind of became covert, went underground. You know, but has always been present, right? And now is wide open in your face again. Uh, and so this is where we are. Uh, in terms of the systems and structures that we have been in a perpetual uh, fight, if you will, to stand up and resist, to resist and stand up uh, against. And last but not least, with your reference to Stacey Abrams uh, and her action of building community uh, as her father, and I want to give credit to her mother, both parents, are, if I'm not mistaken, in, in preaching, you know. So she she wonderfully has some great, 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 great models in the work of community building and uh, relationship building, really. Uh, and so she transferred that into action. You know, I am so, so very proud because at the end of the day, her gubernatorial race was in in Georgia was subverted was undermined those votes uh were uh deliberately distorted uh that she would not obviously win the race and she what i love the lesson to be learned is she even reported getting uh to a place where she soaked in her 
ice cream for a few days for a moment. She had a small uh, moment of, you know, sitting in the disappointment. And then she took action. I encourage anybody to watch her TED Talk on this. Then she made a decision to answer a few questions for her own uh, self and, and, and began to take action and allow the disappointment and the, uh, you know, the, um, the undermining of her race to fuel uh, her subsequent action, which, as you see, took a lot of time and investment uh, to get where she uh, was able to be a very influential factor uh, in the changing of the state of Georgia from a red Republican state to a blue one. And now even that action, uh, it has, you know, Georgia has passed laws recently to, to roll back the hands of time and reenact more voter suppression. And so we are in that struggle, that age, that struggle has never stopped. I, I just want to take pause to mention even Reverend uh, Senator Raphael Warnock as well, who is one of the beneficiaries of Abrams' work, but also uh, a uh, clear activist has been on the wall in the state of Georgia, pastor of Ebenezer, the great Ebenezer Baptist Church, if we know our history, right, where uh, the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. pastored and his father pastored, you know. And so um, I just want to uh, really bring light and lift up the necessity of this preacher, right? Everybody talks about the separation of church and state, recognizing and realizing the full call on his life that uh, that the action of Jesus, if we're really walking in the call and the action of Jesus, if we're really fulfilling our faith walk as Christians, I can only speak for uh, what I align with in Christianity. You would know if you search the scriptures that Jesus was all about uh, uplifting the people, writing the injustice, uh, laying claim to uh, uh, delivering those who were in bondage, freeing people, uh, was all about healing the those who were sick and uh, lifting up those who were downtrodden. The ministry and the walk, the work of Jesus was justice-minded and oriented. And if you pay attention, there is no way that you can uh, stand in good conscience as a faith-believing and abiding Christian and not act in kind to stand for justice, righteousness, peace, truth, uh, to stand for the manifest um, equity of all God's children. And in particularly, those who find themselves often oppressed, those who have the hue of me and you, those who are Black, 
those who are brown. The ministry, the our God is the God of the oppressed to 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 point or or to give homage to the late great theologian uh, James Cone. And so I just wanted to uh, sort of I know I've said a lot again, but I wanted to address some of those key points that you mentioned. And and the thing about Stacey Abrams' success, uh, I think, taps into Black culture. So when you want to talk about Black family, Black faith, all of it ties into our African-centered roots, right? And I think when you get Black people together, we are a communal people. This is why the days of old were deeply uh, uh, rich in, in community. Community means something in our Africanism, in our African culture. And so, you know, I know that Stacey Abrams, they got out there and they got, they went to knocking on doors. They went to having personal contact because that's what matters in the community. That is how church building happens as well. When you reach out and touch someone, we are a people who are um, shaped, we are uh, uh, moved, we are influenced uh, by the personal touch. And it almost reminds me of uh, an adage that Maya Angelou is noted for coining or noted for lifting up often that people may not remember much about what you say but they'll always remember how you made them feel. And so we are a touchy-feely people. We are personal people. And I think when we get out uh, of our, the comfort zones of this individual nature, you know, get out of our uh, personal pods and, 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 and homes, and, and when we get out in community and get in fellowship with each other, you will find a lifting not only of black people, but all people. I believe as human beings, we were designed to be in relationship with each other. Relationship absolutely matters. I, I am so in love with everything you just said. I do have one last thing, um, and this will be the last thing before we go. Okay. <laughs> so I had a similar conclusion with a friend of mine. And he said something along the lines of, we won't be able to kumbaya ourselves into liberation. And this pairs with another thought and um, about our African roots. So I've been thinking about Harriet Powers, who was a woman who lived during you know, the enslavement period, and she made quilts. And Harriet Powers, she made story quilts, and she, um, they would tell us that she's illiterate, but I believe that she was, she just spoke through her art. And so she would use these story quilts to not only talk about her faith, because she was very, faith-driven, very Christian woman, but also use these story quilts to talk about her family. And um, through the pictures in these quilts, they, they tell a story um, 
And like when you study it, like art history, when you look at it, the story is that your faith will operationalize you. It will allow you to reconcile death and operationalize your mind in, in essence. Um, you know, she uses a lot of stories, uh, the story of Moses or, um, you know, the story of the great flood, um, you know, stories that are of tragedy and death. Um, and, and she puts those into her quilts as something that, that she built her understanding of faith around. And, um, and I wanted to kind of end on that because my, again, back to my friend, he was saying that it is important to build community and we are a people who, who build through in connection. But he also mentioned that there are people who can't be trusted. Like people who will show up in your community, they'll look right, they'll talk right, they'll do all the but they don't have your best interest in mind. And so there's just an eroding of trust. Like we can't trust each other. And, and somehow we have to balance that. We have to balance the fact that we need each other, that we want to feel in community with each other. But sometimes the person who will kill you or bring you down is, is, are the, are the people that you thought you were in community with. And so like to balance the two thoughts, like we have an African faith that is built off of collective identity and work. And also we have an African-American experience where our faith has operationalized us to deal with tragedy and death. But we also know from our experience that we can't 100% trust each other I wanted to know what your thoughts are on like maybe working through that okay well uh once again uh let me just say you are never short on uh giving me a um a boatload I mean, this is more than just a nugget to chew the fat on here. And so I will do my best to try to address most of this. I, I love the fact that you uh, uh, mentioned this piece of not kumbayaing yourself to into liberation. I'm not quite sure what your friend meant by that um, in, in the sense of this is more than just a come to Jesus moment is I guess how I interpret it. Um, I absolutely believe that yes, it's more than just singing that song. It's more than just saying nice words. It's more than just talking the talk. It's very essential to walk the walk. I want to point us toward the late great prophetic word of a very familiar uh, black history uh, giant, <laughs> that of Frederick Douglass, right? When uh, giving his uh, emancipation uh, talk, uh, you know, speech, 
to the West Indies uh, in their liberation movement. Uh, we often know the beginning of his talk, which sort of goes on to say, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. Um, but oftentimes we miss the in-between parts. He talks about, you, you know, you can't say that you love the, you know, the, the, the crop, you know, or the blooming of the flower. I'm paraphrasing here, but the point is you can't say that you enjoy to reap the harvest of the land if you're not willing uh, to also work the land, till the soil, or you can't say you uh, enjoy the, the beauty, if you will, of the trees and the grass and not also, uh, you know, deal with the rain that must fall in order for the vegetation to flourish and become and sustain itself as life-giving. Uh, I guess at the end of the day, is struggle is always going to be with us. As a matter of fact, you sort of suggested that white supremacy is necessary to have this ideology of blackness to distinguish or, or, or give voice to uh, distinguishing uh, those of peoples of color. Um, but I would also dare press you to think that struggle is also uh, inherently uh, present and, and necessary in order for you to have some appreciation, right, for the liberation, uh, to, to have some appreciation for the victories, to have some appreciation uh, for uh, the progress. <laughs> and so uh, I want to sort of wrestle uh, with the two, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass sort of uh, captures this whole piece by saying uh, struggle, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, power, he says, concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. And so, yes, we have to do more than sing Kumbaya or say Kumbaya. We have to act. Yes, we have to place a demand on the powers of injustice that exist. Yes, we have to tell our story. And that brings me to your uh, mentioning of Miss Harriet Powers, who I'm not familiar with, but I certainly look forward to becoming more familiar with in the near future. But Harriet Powers, you said, uh, would tell her story through her quilting. And quilting is another, uh, I hate to suggest a lost art, but it's also uh, a common art form uh, of many of our ancestral mothers uh, of, the, of the South, right? But she would speak through her art of quilting. She would talk about her faith, you said. She would talk about her family um, and... Um, I just want to lift up from you sharing about Ms. Powers that it's important for us to tell our story. I think that is one key factor or nugget uh, 
I think one of the beauties of your podcast today is it helps in some sense uh, to lift up uh, the various stories of those in different walks of life, but with regard to the Black family, with regard to the Black community, with regard to Black faith. I think one of the greatest areas that we have fallen short is in telling our story. Just to hear you say today, wow, I didn't know that, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, what our grandmother, uh, you know, went through, or I didn't know that we had this or had that, or I didn't know that you shared a name with our, you know, that means that we have not told our story. And it's so important if, you know, the story uh, language is an essential component of culture. And so if we want to sustain our cultural aesthetic, if we want to sustain uh, the, uh, the gym, the, fair, the, the heirloom of Black faith and family, it is absolutely essential that we tell the story of our mothers, our fathers, and their mothers and fathers for generations as far back as we can stand and to continue to ensure that that's passed on for generations following. Let me just say this, not to point out a particular uh, group, but you know, I do, uh, prior to our pandemic, I would uh, monthly go into the correctional center out here in Chicago, the Cook County Correctional Center, and we would do ministry with uh, our dear brothers who are incarcerated. And um, uh, one of the things that you'll notice that you don't find, you know, certainly we know that uh, black and brown uh, men and women are overrepresented in uh, the, the carceral system, right? However, I, I, I submit to you today, you don't find uh, uh, Jewish folk you don't find too many Jewish people in jail and in prison. Why is that? I'm not just talking about white folks. I'm specific. Jewish. I just want to say that uh, I have a pastor friend who actually posed this question to a rabbi. And the rabbi's response was simple. You know, not that Jewish folks are any better than anyone else. But Jewish folks don't allow any fo anyone else to educate their children. They have their own schools. They continue to maintain the practice of their tradition in their homes. Uh, you know, uh, there is a rite of passage for every Jewish teen to, uh, you know, go through their bat mitzvah. So, so, so what am I saying? I am saying that these are our traditions. Every Jewish man, woman, boy, and girl can tell you about the Holocaust. But how many Black children can talk about the Black Holocaust that persists today? How many of them even know about the transatlantic? How many of them know about the Jim Crow South? How many of them know about just the experience 
of their grandmothers and their uh, great grandmothers and fathers. We have stopped telling our story. And I think that is the greatest lesson or nugget uh, if we end today in terms of what we can do to continue to take our faith and allow it to help us to deal with the death dealing systems of oppression uh, that we continue to stand against in our culture. It's important to be able to be an informed people who know who you are. Because if you know who you are, oh my word, if you ever had an, an inkling of who you are, uh, then there, it would be impossible uh, to see uh, some of the, uh, the outcomes that we see today. You see, no one can touch, no matter my circumstances, situation, no one can touch that which sits on the inside of me. You know, I'm very uh, clear about who I am and whose I am. And I just want to say with your point about uh, this lack of trust and this concern about, uh, you know, everyone who's your kin is not your kind. That's an old adage that we often use today. Uh, and that may be true, but that's true everywhere. You know, once again, when I lean on the ministry, the life, the, the model of Jesus Christ himself, even Jesus handpicked each disciple and Judas was one of them. One of them was going to be a traitor. One of them was going to, uh, you know, lead him into the throes uh, of those who would ultimately crucify him. And, and, and so, uh, you know, having to deal with uh, the outliers, you know, of, of families or the outliers of communities, the, the, the imposters, if you will, who will serve to undermine, uh, you know, uh, the trust, undermine the, uh, the relationships, the bonds and the values, those folks will always be present. And that's not limited to race. That's not limited to anything. It's not limited to race, gender, orientation, anything. You're going to have that as long as you have humanity because human beings will fail you. Even at your best, you will be misunderstood. And so what is the take home? The take home is to tell your story for me. The take home is to know who you are at your core. You asked me at the beginning of our talk to tell you a little bit about myself and who I am. And I am very clear that I am the express manifestation of the love of God realized in this earth realm for such a time as this. I recognize and am clear that I am a spirit being. I operate in spiritual uh, realms. And I am held captive on planet Earth by this body. The gravitational pull is on my body, but not on my soul, not on my spirit. You understand? And so when I know who I am at my core, you know, I am an African-American woman. Right. And I am living in uh, an unjust society and culture. I am living in a divided 
uh, uh, culture called the United States of America. And yes, I have purpose. I was placed in this culture, in this earth realm for such a time as this by God, vicariously through the womb of my mother, Minrose T. Hall, for purpose. I am the daughter of Cornell Hall. I'm sent here on purpose. My mother, my father were uh, 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 deliberate in their uh, pouring into me. I am Dr. S.C. Hall today, not because I came out the womb desiring to be, but because I am the product of someone who spoke into my life. Not just one, but several someones. Because I am the product of, of, of God, nature, you know, and a, 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 a God manifestation that is yet real and relevant in my life today. I am able to stand firm in who I am greatly, largely in part, because I know a little bit about my story and I'm seeking every day to learn more. And I admonish us all to do the same. Thank you so much for this. and. I, I I am moved. I'm like over here tearing up. So I I really appreciate everything you said to me today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And uh, it is it's such an honor and a pleasure. I'm so proud of you. And uh, I thank you for bringing me into the 21st century as this is my first podcast experience. God bless you for helping an old girl out. <laughs> well, I look forward to talking to you again, okay? Yes, indeed. Thank you. No problem. Have a good morning. You too. Bye-bye. <laughs>